0: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want to give you the thesis of this sermon at the very beginning. And it is simply this. Grace won't amaze you unless you get the wretch part. If you don't understand your wretchedness apart from Christ, you won't value and celebrate in the unmerited favor, the grace of God. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, got the wretch part before he was converted He was involved in the evil, depraved slave trade. He was a wicked man. But the Lord Jesus intersected his life, saved him, forgave him of his sins, and then eventually moved him into the role of pastor. John Newton wrote many hymns, the most famous being the one that I've quoted but the reason that John Newton was so amazed by grace is because he understood the wretch part. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we begin our study of the Beatitudes. So you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read down through the entire passage, verse 12. But we're going to focus our thoughts primarily on verse 3. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And when you found your place, I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Just a quick moment of personal privilege to say thank you. Appreciate Bruce's words and the kindness of, uh, Pastor Church Committee, the kindness of this church and celebration of five years of ministry here. Uh, Claire and I and our family we are a we're a blessed family, uh, and we so much appreciate you and are so grateful that we get to be here um, at First Baptist. Um, our kids, we got. Four kids, uh, Cameron and Caleb and Abby Faith and Connor. I just want to thank you for the way you love them and pray for um, them. On my prayer app on my phone, I have a a, a card for each one of my kids. And a, a, a prayer request I have for each of my kids, I pray all the time, is that my being a pastor would be a blessing and not a burden to them. And God has been faithful to answer that prayer. And the way that God has answered that prayer is through the kindness of the churches we have served. The churches we have served have been so kind and loving to our family. And because of that, the fact that I'm a pastor is a blessing to my kids, not a burden. And I praise the Lord for His grace. So thank you. Thank you for loving us. Um, We love you. We really do. Even if you do send Bruce as your primary spokesman, we love you. We love you greatly. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, this is Jesus, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so grateful for this this opportunity to, to fellowship as a faith family. Lord, to unite with hearts and voices in praise to you. Lord, to celebrate what you've done for us. We, Lord, are amazed by your grace. We pray, God, that you would use the sermon this morning to capture our hearts anew and afresh with that that grace. Change us, transform us by the power of the Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would understand the truths of Scripture. And we'll thank you and praise you for that. We ask this prayer and offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Notice the context of this sermon Commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through chapter 7 in the book of Matthew. I call this the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. The greatest sermon we have recorded is the sermon that Jesus preached in these chapters. The context says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now the word disciples sometimes refers to the twelve Oftentimes it refers to a broader group of people that have chosen to follow him and, and learn from his teaching. Probably that's the case here. There, were, uh, there was a group of people that wanted to hear the teaching of Christ's disciples. So he goes up on a mountain, Sermon on the Mount, and it says there he sat down and his disciples are gathered around. But these disciples who made a conscious decision to listen to the teaching of Jesus... We're not the only people listening to this sermon. In fact, at the very end of the sermon, in chapter seven, verse twenty-eight, the Bible said, "The crowds were astonished at his teaching." So there were people there who were disciples who had made a decision to follow Jesus and wanted to hear his teaching, and there were crowds, probably curiosity seekers, that that had come to hear the teaching of this rabbi who had recently come on the scene as he launched his. Public ministry. So there's a crowd here listening to this sermon. And I want to just quickly ask this question as we think about the, the larger sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount. What is the purpose of this sermon? And the the basic answer is this: the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to discuss the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 20, chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 33, and chapter 7, verse 21. We see this emphasis on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the first part of the sermon, the intro of the sermon, is a section that's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Now, that word Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. And the word blessed here, makareos in the Greek language, is a word that's much more in-depth than just the idea of happiness. A lot of people translate these verses, happy, uh, is the, happy is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's much more than just happiness. The, the word makareos speaks of Favorable circumstances. It speaks of a wholeness or a deep inner satisfaction. It speaks specifically in this context of a satisfaction that comes because you are rightly related to God and rightly related to others. When you are rightly related to God and you are rightly related to others, you will live with a deep inner satisfaction. That's the point here. And notice in verse 3 and verse 10, the first and the last beatitude, that the reward for the behavior mentioned is the same. There in verse 3 it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10 it said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So scholars comment on this passage And note that this is a literary device called inclusio, where the beginning of a section, the end of the section, have the same idea. The kingdom of heaven in this case. And so that means that everything bracketed between those two verses that speak of the kingdom of heaven are under the umbrella of those two verses. In other words, the entire section that we call the Beatitudes is about the kingdom of heaven heaven that's the theme of the beatitudes and I like the way that D.A. Carson says that he says these beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom or let me say it like this these beatitudes are realities now watch this that should characterize kingdom citizens so if you're a Christian you're a member of the kingdom of God you've been saved you've been brought into that kingdom if you're a follower of King Jesus. And if that is true of your life, these characteristics, these beatitudes ought to be true of your life. We should be characterized by these qualities. You saw the definition on the, the intro video and I'll share this every sermon. The beatitudes are characteristics of kingdom citizens that lead to true fulfillment in life. So that ought to pique your interest. The 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 Beatitudes we're going to study for the next eight weeks are characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. And if these characteristics are lived out in an increasing way, it will bring into your life real fulfillment. And who doesn't want to be fulfilled in life? The secret is found here in the Beatitudes. Now, just a quick word before we get into the first Beatitude. These characteristics are definitively countercultural. Did you notice that? Definitively countercultural. Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes this According to Jesus, who is blessed? Is it the courageous, the wise, the temperate, or the just? No. How about the agreeable, the funny, the intelligent, the attractive, the sensitive, and the fit? No. According to Jesus, listen. The one who is poor, sad, lowly, hungry, and mistreated is blessed. Ladies and gentlemen, O'Donnell writes, welcome to the strange world and wisdom of Jesus. Welcome to Jesus' narrow gate theology, teaching that separates the crowds who want health and wealth in the here and now, and the disciples who are willing to deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow Jesus. From a worldly perspective, as we compare these Beatitudes to the message of this world in which we live, these Beatitudes don't make sense. They're countercultural, but they lead to true fulfillment in life. And the countercultural nature of the Beatitudes is seen clearly in the first one given. Look what it says there in verse 3. This is the first. Beatitude. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, it's not talking about financial or material poverty. It says, blessed are the poor, and it's modified by the phrase... In spirit. It's talking about a poverty that's related to your spiritual life. It's talking about spiritual poverty and a recognition of our spiritual poverty before God. So you say, Wade, what does that entail? Spiritual poverty? Well, I'm going to give you three quick thoughts this morning about spiritual poverty. Poverty. So we understand what this beatitude is all about. First of all, I want you to see a description of spiritual poverty. A description of spiritual poverty. It says there, blessed are the poor. That word can be translated impoverished. The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge... That we are spiritually bankrupt. That's what that phrase means. Spiritually bankrupt. And there are three aspects of this spiritual condition. These are three ways to know if you are feeling your spiritual poverty. First of all, a person that understands spiritual poverty understands they are undeserving of salvation undeserving of salvation. Blessed are the the poor in spirit. This means that we've come to a place in our understanding of God's word and truth that we realize that all we bring to the table is our sin. That's all we bring to the table. You see, the Bible teaches that you and I have sinned against a holy God. The Bible speaks of God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. God who brought humanity into existence and then prescribed for humanity his expectations and commandments as to how we ought to obey him and live in a way that brings true fulfillment in life. But the The story of God's Word is this. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, there was rebellion. Sin entered the world. And rebellion has been the story of human history. Rebellion against a God who is holy and pure and just and righteous and majestic and transcendent. The Bible teaches all have sinned against this holy God. And fallen short of his glory. Now, who would argue that? Who would argue the fact that every single one of us has blown it? If you argue that fact, you really don't understand the teaching of the Word of God. We are all sinners. And here's the deal the the seriousness of an offense. Now, come in close. Thanks, Bruce. The seriousness of an offense rises with the dignity of the one offended. So let's just say that you send me a nasty gram. You send me a mean letter, right? I don't like you, Pastor Wade. I don't like what you're about. I I don't care for you. I don't want to see you again. I I you know I don't like you. Okay, I get the letter and. Uh, I file it in my little round container there under my desk and and that's it, right? If you send a letter like that to the President of the United States, the Secret Service may come knocking on your door. Because the seriousness of an offense rises with the dignity of the one offended. And guess what? The Bible teaches our God is perfectly... Holy, total, unique, moral majesty. And we've all sinned against Him. And the Bible says because of our sin and rebellion, we are enemies of God. And so, if you're saved this morning, if you know Jesus, if you know you're going to heaven when you die, your sins have been forgiven, you've been reconciled to God, you know that you're saved even though you don't deserve to be saved. That's what grace means. Undeserved favor. And so if you have spiritual poverty, you say, you know what? I'm saved, but I don't deserve it. I'm saved not because I'm good. I'm saved because he is good. Secondly, a person that understands their spiritual poverty, understands they are unable to save themselves. There in your notes, unable to save myself. Over in Ephesians 2, the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that we are unable to to rescue ourselves from our spiritual separation from God. When we sin against a holy God, there's a wall of impurity between us and that God. The Bible says that God is so holy, he cannot even look upon sin in the book of Habakkuk. So when we sin, it separates us from him. And the only way we can be reconciled to Him and have a relationship with Him is if our sin is taken away. And here's the deal. You can't take away your own sin. You can't work to overcome your sin. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, there is sin in your life that separates you from God. So you can do all the good works that you can fit into this life. But if you do a bunch of good works and never have your sin issue dealt with, you will die and spend eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell. Your sin must be forgiven, and you can't forgive yourself. You can't take your own sin away. Only Jesus can take your sin away. He came and died on the cross and took your sin and shame and took the punishment that you deserve and I deserve. He died in our place so that we place our faith and trust in Christ. His shed blood is applied to our spiritual account and our sins are washed away. They are forgiven by Jesus. But spiritual poverty means, I understand, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough to save my self. Any, any religion or idea that you, can, that you can climb the ladder to God is an unbiblical idea. The only way to have a relationship with God is to have your sin forgiven. The only way to have your sin forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus. Amen? But third... Third aspect of spiritual bankruptcy or spiritual poverty, it means you're undone by brokenness. It means you feel your sin, the weight of your sin. It's interesting over in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the great Old Testament passages. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, is given this vision of the throne room of heaven. He sees the Lord seated on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple... The foundations are trembling under the majesty and weight of God's glory. And he sees this this vision of heaven and he notices there... Cherubim and seraphim flying around the throne singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So so Isaiah gets this this fresh vision of the the majesty and the glory and the holiness of the Lord. You know what he says next? He says, woe is me. It's interesting to note in chapters 3, 4, and 5, before you get to Isaiah 6, Isaiah, as a prophet of God, is pronouncing woe on other people. Woe to this wickedness, and woe to that, that wickedness, and woe to this person, woe to that person, woe to this nation, woe to that nation. He's pronouncing woes because of people's rebellion against God. But when Isaiah sees this vision of the throne room of heaven, he says, Woe is me. and then he says i 'm undone i 'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He understands that when he lays his life beside the holy character and nature of God, that he falls short he 's undone by brokenness over his sin we'll talk some more about that next week when we talk about those who mourn. But I want to ask you a question. Have you come to that place in your life where you realize you've sinned against a holy God? You realize you can't save yourself. You realize you're undeserving and and you're broken over your sin. Martin Lloyd Jones says this about spiritual poverty. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It means this, that we, if we are truly Christian, we shall not rely upon our natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families. We shall not boast that we belong to certain nations or nationalities. We shall not build upon our natural temperament. We shall not rely upon money or any wealth we may have. The thing about which we shall boast will not be the education we have received or the particular school or college which we may have been. We should not rely upon the, any gifts like that of natural personality or intelligence or general or special ability. We should not rely upon our own morality and conduct and good behavior. We should not bank to the slightest extent on the life we have lived or are trying to live. Spiritual bankruptcy, Lloyd-Jones says, is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to Him and in utter dependence upon Him. And his grace and mercy. Have you come to a place that you realize, spiritually speaking, you bring nothing to the table? Spiritual poverty. In the London Times, the early 20th century, in the editorial section of the paper, a question was posed. They wanted feedback from the subscribers to that newspaper. The question was, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong? Listen, if you had to write a a short little essay on what is wrong with the world, what would you write? What would you mention as what's wrong with our world, what's wrong with our culture, wrong with our society? There was a man named G.K. Chesterton. He was a Christian apologist. And he answered this editorial. And here's what he said, and it was printed in the paper. What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, Chesterton wrote, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Have you come to that place in your spiritual life that it's not about what everybody else is doing, but you understand you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Us in this room, First Baptist, you know, just five year anniversary. Wade, you're being kind of mean. Listen. We're the problem. We have sinned. We need a Savior. That's spiritual poverty. There's a description here. Very quickly, secondly, there's the necessity of spiritual poverty. First of all, spiritual poverty is a precursor for salvation. Notice what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you don't get into the kingdom unless you understand your poverty. Or let me say it like this. If you're trying to save yourself, you won't make it into the kingdom of God. Because you'll never reach out for God's solution, the only solution, who is Jesus. We have to be poor in spirit to become a Christian says there, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This refers to eternal life that begins at the moment of conversion. There's a direct correlation between recognizing one's spiritual poverty and entering the kingdom. So many people, listen, will never be saved because they do not recognize their need. They think they're basically okay. I'm a good old guy or I'm a good old gal. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good citizen. I don't need a savior. I'm basically okay. That's why Jesus gave us these beatitudes. If you want to get into the kingdom, you've got to come to a place that says, I'm not okay. I have rebelled against God. I need help. It's a precursor for salvation. In fact, this sermon, the entire Sermon on the Mount... Points us to God's grace by elevating one's concept of righteousness. In other words, the entire sermon is meant to show us we fall short. You don't believe me? Over in chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, You got to be perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody in here perfect? Any perfect people in here? That's the point of the sermon. We're not perfect, we need help. We're spiritually bankrupt. And it's really interesting what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking uh, in large part to the religious leaders. Because they thought, if we look righteous on the outside, then we're good to go with God. We're giving our alms. We're praying our public prayers. We're memorizing scripture. I mean, if, if we had Pharisees in our church today, we would look at them and say, these are great church members. They're great church members. Because outwardly they look so good. But Jesus elevates in the Sermon on the Mount their concept of righteousness. He says things like this. Oh, you think you're a good person and right with God because you never killed anybody. Then Jesus says, well, what about your heart? Have you ever hated anybody? In God's eyes hatred is murder in your heart so you might be here this morning and say i've never killed anybody pastor Wade. i'm not that bad you ever hated anybody could it be you're hating somebody right now so you know what i say to that i'm guilty you're guilty you say i've never cheated on my spouse and jesus says what about lust if you've ever lusted guilty And then Jesus says things like, hey, you know those people that hate you, your enemies? When they strike you, I want you to turn the other cheek. Oh, and and, and by the way, I also want you to uh, pray for them. Oh, and and one more thing, I want you to love them too. (laughs) And we look at that and think, wow, that is a standard that I fall short of. And that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The entire sermon is meant to show us our spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty, secondly, diminishes pride. It's a precursor for salvation, it diminishes pride, the pride of self achievement. If God had set it up where we could earn our salvation, of course, it's impossible because we've all sinned, but let's just say that there was a way to earn your salvation. If we could earn our salvation, you know how arrogant we would be? And condescending to others who did not earn their salvation? We'd be like the Pharisees. Look how good I am. Look what I've done. I've marched my way into heaven. Spiritual poverty says, Why would you be proud of, proud, proud of anything? You bring nothing to the table except your sin. So it diminishes the pride of self-achievement. It diminishes the pride of comparison. Thinking you're better than anyone else. Again, that was a pharisaical issue. Pharisees strutting around with an external righteousness. Good synagogue attending Pharisees. And they'd look at other people and say, Well, I'm glad I'm not like that person over there. Listen to me. If you understand the wretch part you understand you're not better than anybody in this world. You're just another sinner that needs a Savior. And you will cast away pride that plays the comparison game. There's a song, old song by Stephen Curtis Chapman that speaks of this kind of awareness. It says... If the truth were known and light were shown on every hidden part of my soul, folks would turn away, shake their heads and say, He still has such a long way to go. If the truth were known, they'd see that the only good in me is Jesus. Precious Jesus. The walls could speak of the times I've been weak when everybody thought I was strong. Could I show my face if it weren't for the grace of the one who's known the truth all along? If the truth were known, they'd see that the only good in me is Jesus, precious Jesus. Spiritual poverty leads you to a place where you can say that with conviction and fervor. The only good in me is Jesus. Spiritual poverty keeps you dependent upon God. Again, purpose of Summer on the Mount is you need help. And he elevates righteousness. And the idea here is that you can't live a kingdom citizen type life without his help. Even if you're a Christian, you are dependent upon God and his help for living out these characteristics. The necessity of spiritual poverty. I've shared my testimony with you many, many times before. I'm going to share it with you one more time and I'll share it again down the road a lot. But, but there's one moment of my Salvation experience that I remember so very clearly. I was saved when I was nine years of age. My pastor sat down with me at my dining room table on a summer afternoon. He was just turning to different verses in the Bible and he would have me read them. And and I'll never forget, nine years old, reading Romans 6.23, The Wages of Sin is Death. And I'm just going to tell you this. At that moment, in my my heart and my mind, I knew... I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I couldn't have articulated spiritual poverty. I didn't know what the Beatitudes were. But in that moment, I felt my spiritual poverty and knew I needed help, knew I needed a Savior. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he talked about a, a description of spiritual poverty, uh, 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 the necessity of spiritual poverty. But third and last, I want to give you an illustration of spiritual poverty, striking illustration. Turn over with me to Luke chapter eighteen. We'll close with this. Luke chapter eighteen, verse nine. Luke eighteen, verse nine. Jesus said, or the Bible says, He, Jesus, also told this parable, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He told this parable to some, listen to the context, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So, this parable he's about to share is intended for folks that don't have spiritual poverty, that don't understand being poor in spirit. That's who this parable is for. And look at, look at what he says. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, religious leader. The other a tax collector, despised in society. They were seen as dishonest, corrupt, tools of the Roman Empire. They were disloyal to the Jewish people. And they were hated in Jewish culture in the first century. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. It's almost like he's, he's like pointing at him. I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Look what he says. Here's my resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I got, get. Aren't I something, Jesus? Aren't, aren't, God, I'm great, right? Not Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah for, in large measure. But he's praying to God and he says, Look at my res- look at what I bring to the table. I am something spiritually speaking. But look what Jesus says next. But the tax collector, standing far off, feeling his unworthiness to even approach the presence of God, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus makes a very important and profound statement. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, Jesus is saying, the precursor to understanding your need for a Savior, the precursor to you calling out to God, asking for His grace and mercy, is spiritual poverty. Understanding your unworthiness, your undeserving. But you know that mercy comes from his hand. So you humbly cry out to him. So let me ask you a question. and I don't want you to answer out loud. But as you think about this parable, do you see yourself in one or the other here? Do you see maybe a little bit of yourself in the Pharisee? Proud, comparing... Himself to others. Thinking that you're basically good and of course God would save you. Of course God wants you in his kingdom. Look how good you are. Or do you see yourself in the the tax collector? Understanding you bring nothing to the table except your sin. And feel your need For the Lord. If you don't see yourself in the tax collector, you need a good dose of recognizing your spiritual poverty. If I don't see myself in the tax collector, I need a good dose of spiritual poverty, understanding that blessed are the poor in spirit. So here's the takeaway, and we'll be through. We bring nothing to the table. We need God's grace. We we bring nothing to the table. We need God's grace. Because grace won't amaze you. Grace won't captivate you. Grace won't impress you. Grace won't move you. Until you get the wretch part. Blessed are all the poor in spirit. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.